Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me for the, I believe the third time, is Shane Jenkins. Lovely to have you back. It's good to be back, coming at you from Denver, Colorado. Thanks for having me, Rachel. It's always fun to have you on. We had you on, I think, last for one of my favorite episodes, talking about the artist James Tiso. But uh, we've ricocheted around a couple of different topics so far. So for the third one, again, we're coming at you with this very different topic. (laughs) For a while, Shane has been begging me and saying, I absolutely have to read Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos. And I finally did it. I finally came through. And I think there's a lot to talk about. It's a very interesting and complex book. I think when you talk about Walker Percy, he's one of these big Catholic American South writers that gets lumped in with Flannery O'Connor, naturally, Mm -hmm, because they mm -hmm. were relatively contemporaneous. And I'm a huge Flannery O'Connor fan. So it's been very interesting to get to see like the other side of the American South Catholic (laughs) in in Walker Percy. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a a gift to me that Rachel has read this. Let me just tell you guys, because if you want weird catholic literature like the most unexpected how is this catholic but it is catholic literature that's what this book is and so it it was a bit of an ask for you to read this rachel so thank you for for doing so um and i think yeah i think we'll have a pretty fun and provocative discussion about it it's uh i guess i'll just say first to, to tease your interest it's the last book he ever published and it's in a way the summary of all of his thought throughout his novels, which is what he was primarily, a novelist. He wanted to be an essayist, but he never succeeded at it. And so he had to stick to novels. But yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to see him try to put all his personal philosophy and wisdom of life into one book. So yeah, thank you for reading it. Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say is that it, it interestingly isn't a novel. It's almost in a weird way, a sort of genre unto itself, technically in nonfiction, although <laughs> he does a lot of like imaginative suppositions in it. It's a, it was written in 1983 and it's a satirical self-help book mm-hmm. um, that explores the modern age and the kind of quest to know yourself and the unknowability of self. Um, mm-hmm. To give it slightly longer title called Lost in the Cosmos, The Last Self-Help Book. I say it's slightly longer title because if you go to the title page, <laughs> there's, a, there's yeah. actually about 20 titles. Yeah. <laughs> he has a bunch of subtitles. <laughs> He really likes the, you'll see this in it throughout the book, but he really likes piling up and piling up and piling up various descriptions on top of each other. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the title is technically no no exception to this. Right. Um, actually, that's maybe a good jumping off point to talk about the structure of this book. As we've said, it's, it's a kind of a self-help book, but it's definitely not actually a self-help book. It's no. very tongue-in-cheek. It is very mock- mocking of the trend. And, and I'm like, I envision the 80s he's writing in as like peak Reagan evangelical Christian like self-made kind of America wherein you have these self-help books you have people promising you happiness if you just do this or change your mindset and he's seeing right through it right he's he's seeing that there's an issue about humanity which has existed since the the beginning of, of humanity since time immemorial and lots of people are trying to paper it over especially Americans nowadays, and maybe other communities as well. But he wants to highlight what that problem is and then also offer a remedy. I'll get into it in a bit, but 
he was a doctor before he became a writer. And so he is constantly thinking of writing as a kind of a healing of the soul. And so mm. he has that in mind. Very, very cool. And so the book is split kind of, I guess, into three sections, although there's mm-hmm. a lot of variation within the sections. But the first part, he gives a series of case studies about various aspects of the self. And so there's a section called the fearful self, the envious self. And in each of these sections, he gives a kind of interactive quiz where he'll give you a sort of introductory paragraph, which sets up a scenario or posits a particular question, and then gives you these multiple choice answers. And they're, again, they're very humorously written. They're sort of <laughs> deliberately contradictory. There's almost like a kaleidoscope of various things. And in some ways, if we're reading it from a Catholic point of view, it's not that there's one right answer. Like he has usually one option, which is like the Christians, something, something, something. But even further than that, he'll give like a a nuance on top of that or a different perspective Mm. or or throw in something that we usually associate as being Christian, but maybe actually isn't like a sort of maybe American idea of what is like a good thing to do that isn't necessarily actually a Christian thing. Mm -hmm. So he builds up all of these options. And then at the end, it always says check one. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're supposed to to pick pick the one most relevant to you. But again, like we said, it's very satirical. And then Mm -hmm. he goes into from this very sort of poppy punchy section, he goes into (laughs) the second section, which is like quite a really genuinely technical section mm-hmm. on the study of semiotics and signs and linguistics. If you don't know what semiotics is, it is the study of signs and symbols. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to bring this In up. reference to language, yeah. And it's one of my pet peeves. I have never read the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code books, but the fact <laughs> that I know the main character is called, quote, a symbologist, as if there wasn't <laughs> a term for people who study <laughs> signs. <laughs> it's semiotics <laughs> so everyone knows <laughs> and like i've studied linguistics and i've studied semiotics in my english degree and i've done it at quite a high level like on into my master's degree and even i found it genuinely difficult to grapple with the level of technicality he does a lot of diagrams that are quite <laughs> intricate and there's definitely stuff to get out of it but he does say at the start you can skip this bit if you don't <laughs> want to read it yeah um, it's it's funny because I will say I encountered this book for the first time and I have to do a quick shout out to my professor Stapleford who ran a class that was more or less on semiotics and this is the last book we read but he was of mixed opinions about the section. He thought, how can you say you can't read this? It's like the locus of the entire argument is in there, which I think is true. We'll try to we'll try to break that out for you guys to help you out. But at the same time, like you said, he's very strange about the way he talks about it. He's like, oh, I'm not a semioticist and like, this probably won't even be that important to those who do do semiotics, um, but I'll give it a go anyways. And then here it's like incredibly in depth, referencing like tens of different authors and researchers in the field. And he, he clearly understands it. And, and I'll tell you why later in the podcast. But like, yes, it's yeah, it's a it's a doozy. <laughs> yeah, and so he really looks at language as as a medium to understand the self, or or as our ability mm-hmm. to process our self-understanding. Um, yeah. But he also mm. gives quite an in-depth section about like the various archetypes of the human experience of coping with reality and how mm-hmm. we actually 
need to escape reality, but in escaping it, we then create the problem for ourselves of re-entering reality. So he talks a lot about it in terms of like a scientist who is thinking so far outside the purely material that he's thinking on a cosmological scale. And then mm-hmm. he, he also talks about it in terms of the artist and artistic expression, the ability to transcend through art and as an artist to undergo that experience of producing a work of art that takes both the artist and the audience out of themselves Mm. and how and like he has quite an interesting section about like why so many poets are alcoholics (laughs) and 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 like (laughs) why they travel so much (laughs) why they travel why they get into eastern religion that all of these things are coping mechanisms for what he calls the Mm re-entry the the problem of re-entry into reality so that's all in this one really technical section and then he goes on to this final section which is a series of narrative case studies where he presents a sort of scenario or imaginary story and then all science fiction stories yeah yeah and what he does is he goes through each of the different characters and looks at how they're coping with reality how they see themselves in part of reality and how we as the readers of the book would weigh up how effective they are in in the ways that they are living their lives and experiencing reality yeah Mm-hmm. And I know people who have mixed feelings about the last section. I personally really love it. I feel like it takes what he's talked about and puts it into a humorous story that's more like his novel writing language. So you can get a taste of that. But yeah, it's definitely, it's not like a full story. Like you said, it's, it's a case study where he gives a scenario that's quite humorous and asks, is this satisfying? Does this resonate with you? Does this seem right? Is this absurd? And so it's kind of the last test. After all, he's walked you through to say, now make your decision. Because if you had read this at the beginning, you might have had a different feeling. So, yeah. And you've you've noted here that one of them is based off A Canticle for Leibowitz and the other mm-hmm. is based off uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos. He has a lot to say about Carl Sagan. One of the, <laughs> w- one of the, the titles on the back just says, why is Carl Sagan so lonely? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Um, and as we said he is a catholic writer but this was not written for a specifically catholic audience and i think he has a lot to say about religion and catholicism and a catholic way of seeing the world um but a lot of it is it's not something that you would put in a theology section of a bookshop no i was going to say that even even when he references the catholicism it's rarely the best foot forward for it it's because where that's hidden is in the unspoken sections. He'll have a section, and if you if you read it carefully, you can tell when he's doing this, when he's speaking as himself. But he has sections where he's actually saying what the Catholic argument and answer is, but he's not going to lead with that because he knows that, that anyone who isn't Catholic and is reading this won't understand or will turn off their attention right away. And so he wants to give, I'll get into this, but like he does want to give an honest shake to both sides and saying there are those who are dissatisfied with mere simplistic creationism. There are also mm-hmm. those who are dissatisfied with scientists thinking they've explained everything, and clearly they haven't. Yet, mm-hmm. you know, Catholicism probably falls somewhere in the middle, but he's not going to say it out loud. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah, and like we said, we're going to give a kind of rundown of his life and his perspective, but he was incredibly devout and incredibly sincere. So it's not a kind of mm-hmm. obfuscation which comes from a lack of belief, but it is more about almost disguising the truth and and letting the readers sort of try and come to it themselves. 
The thing that I want to just say before we get into the real meat of this podcast is, and I know that was quite a like a dense <laughs> description. It's not a very long book. It's actually only like it's under three hundred pages, um, so it's it's not that difficult to get through. But the structure of the book is quite complex. But I will say, when I read this, I did call up Shane afterwards and be like, I don't know how I feel about this book, and I actually have some reservations about it and having read it with kind of an idea that maybe we would talk about on a podcast I think I was more conscious of whether I would stand behind this book as a recommendation and I've reflected on it and I've come away and I think there is a huge amount to get out of it so I think doing a podcast on it is a great idea however I do kind of want to just give a few reservations I do think that this is a book that isn't for everyone. I was going to say might not be for everyone. I know for a fact it's not for everyone. <laughs> for sure. Uh, and it also, as much as there's absolutely sections that I find really fun and interesting, there was also sections that I, I found difficult and troubling, I guess, in a way. I just want to give maybe even just a content warning. I think I know some people listen to this with their children around. There are swear words in the book. We'll try and avoid saying swear words. However, um, there will be some explicit content in terms of just talking about sex and depression and suicide. So just to flag that, that maybe this is one to listen with headphones. Like I said, we'll definitely try and avoid it where it's not necessary. But just that there's slightly more adult themes in this one to give that warning in advance. So the first thing that I was going to say is like, as you can see, given that I think we're like a quarter of an hour into this podcast and uh, just describing the format of the book it's quite a challenging format it's it's just like it's not what you expect it's very different to anything else I've ever read so just like you know kind of take it as it comes and and try not to have too many ideas of what it would be like I think the biggest issue that I had coming into it was that I sort of expected a work of apologetics and like I said this is not a book that does actually sit within a theology section of a bookstore it is not actually apologetics. It does offer a profound insight into Catholicism, but like Shane said, it kind of leaves it almost unsaid in some ways. Like it leaves it on the table for you to sort of pick it up and go and turn it over and say, well, this is maybe an option that I haven't thought of before. But because of that, it doesn't it doesn't put the best foot forward for Catholicism, which I don't think it needs to, but I think it's just something to know going in. And also I think I was expecting it to be kind of arguments in favor of Catholicism, and it's really not. He does something very different, which is pull out particular ideas and in this format present a kind of kaleidoscope of responses to it. But because of that, the original thing, like I think I almost was like, this is such a straw man, because he'll he'll pick out a particular article that he's read and uh, extrapolate this great truth from it. And you're like, okay, but that was one article. Like I could show you an article that shows the exact opposite. Like it's not an argument for a particular way of t thinking, or he'll base an entire thing around a completely imaginary conversation that he's made up and has this outcome because he said that it's going to go this way. And you're like, that's not like, <laughs> that's not defensible. You can't use that as a reason for being Catholic or thinking this way just thinking of it more like a kaleidoscope of thought experiments. He does actually call them thought experiments. I think I was going in thinking more along the lines of, say, 
a sort of Chestertonian thing, which is tongue in cheek, has a bit of satire, has a bit of like tongue in cheekness to it, is sort of overstating something and then pulling back and, and revealing the truth behind it. Like I think Chesterton is great at that. And I think I went into the book with that kind of thinking and it was not at all what what, what Walker <laughs> Percy is doing. So just just to be aware of that. And then I think the other part of it that I felt was difficult is because, as we were saying, he's talking about the modern age and he's doing so in a really frank, full-on way. And because of that, he's delving into some of the horrors and some of the things that we feel most uncomfortable with in the modern age. He's also writing, this was in the 80s, but he's kind of like, he's got a slightly more old world sensibility. (laughs) There are some Mm -hmm. stereotypes in there, I think particularly of gay men um, that we would consider outdated or just very specific and very like a specific stereotype. But mixed up with that, he has quite a lot of explicit content and language. He talks about sex and he uses language that is quite graphic. And he's doing so in a way which is to talk about how devalued and degraded sex has become and sexuality has become in the modern age. But like, I I guess I don't love reading that. And so there was parts of it that I did feel like there was a sense of a bad taste in my mouth. And I think that's almost kind of the point, but I do think it's still worth raising before you go into it. And finally, there's one section, which we might come back to again later, but I just want to flag. He has a section on suicide, which when I read it first felt very glib and very much like it was almost saying that suicide isn't that big a deal. And I think... Uh, Shane's going to tell us a bit more about his life now just in a second and I think it becomes a lot clearer when you know his perspective in that he experienced a lot of suicide in his life through his family members and so in some ways he's a lot more comfortable with suicide and I think what he's doing is he's talking about how it's only when we realize that we can die that we don't have to take on the burden of life that we kind of oppress ourselves with with all of our cares and worries and uh, yearnings for status and yearnings for all of these things that like in confronting the reality of death we can actually let a lot of those things go and just enjoy life and and the gift that is life from god mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i would i would just flag it for for people just because i did find it difficult to read especially the first time around yeah no thank you rachel and i think it's worth that we flag these things ahead of time because i have in my zealousness recommended this book to many a Catholic friend and be like, yeah, this is this guy's amazing. They go and read it and they're like, I hated that book and you told me it was Catholic. And I'm like, it was Catholic. Didn't you didn't you know? And they're like, I, I couldn't tell. And so I think it is worth noting that this book isn't for everyone. But for those who want something funny, tongue in cheek, strange, like very different than anything else you've read, but incredibly profound and provoking of discussion, I think this book fits. And, and yeah, I will get into a bit of his background to explain why he is doing what he's doing in a lot of these sections. Mm-hmm. It, it, almost all of his works, it's, it's funny, can be taken directly from his life in some capacity. Whereas I think you could argue like Flannery's works are so imaginative. They're probably things that she knew of or saw or had inspiration for, but they aren't like her life per se. 
right? Yeah, um, I was just going to compare it to my experience of sharing Flannery with others. And I think it's interesting. Another one is our first podcast together was on T.S. Eliot. And I think <laughs> that's that's the one where I'm like, oh, I know people read this and they hate it and they come away <laughs> with a really bad taste in their mouth. And I'm like, how is this possible? Whereas with Flannery, I definitely think I can totally see where the bad feeling and the bad taste and the, mm-hmm, the not mm-hmm. not enjoying it comes from and that's where I always feel like sharing her diary her prayer journal sharing her letters when you have a, a kind of handle on who she is as a person it really opens up those stories to you so true um, so true I like them to begin with anyway, but I definitely felt like I got so much more out of them when I felt like I could really have a lot of confidence in her as a person and therefore as a writer to take me into places that I felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so I think the material in Lost in the Cosmos is worth reading, even when you don't know the context of, of Walker Percy. But I think knowing about him does open it up. Mm-hmm. And I think just to kind of round all of that off, like we said, I don't think this is a book for everyone. However, it will be for some people. And if it's not a book for you, I think this podcast is then perfect because we'll <laughs> hopefully take some of the ideas and synthesize them and present them to you. And so that you kind of get at least some of the benefit of experiencing mm-hmm. what he's talking about. If you feel like this isn't a book that you're going to pick up, if it's not going to vibe well with you, that you will actually get to have some of the benefit of, of going through the things that he talks about through the podcast. So I think it works either way, hopefully. <laughs> just 100%. Don't, just don't be too upset if you read it and then email me saying I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for that, Rachel. Yeah, let, let me let me do what you just spoke of with Flannery then and try to tell you guys a little bit about Percy. We'll, we'll hop into it. So Walker Percy was born in 1916 to a wealthy Southern sort of like around aristocratic family um, in Alabama. And he, his family was spread throughout the South and, and were quite notable people. If you look at his ancestors, they, they list from like, U.S. representatives and and mayors and big business people, famous lawyers. He's part of a, one of those historic dynasty kind of families in a way. But a year or two after he was born, his grandfather committed suicide in the attic by shooting himself in the chest. And it was reported as a, an accident cleaning a weapon. But the circumstances of it and the family's later statements on it say that everyone at the time in a sense knew that it was a suicide and that he had been struggling with it for for quite a while. So Percy has two more brothers born. So he's the oldest of three. But sadly, soon after that, his father commits suicide and with the same gun in the same attic. And so there's a, there's a question there about like, what's going on? And what's what's kind of wrong with this side of the family? Either is it, is it genealogical? Um, or is it societal it's about the lifestyle they're living because they're they're wealthy they're well respected successful and yet this is happening i will say really quickly that i think i'm remembering this correctly when i say percy once said after that his entire life has been spent trying to figure out why his father killed himself so that's in a sense what he would distill all of his work down to was figuring out that one question but anyways moving on his family then had to move. So he and his mom and his brothers moved to Georgia and eventually moved in with their uncle, Will. They called him that. He was a relative of a similar name. And he was this Southern Stoic who was successful, well-educated, had a huge library, was um, well-regarded in his town, but was an eternal bachelor. And so he kind of became this father figure to the three boys and took them in right away after what was supposed to be a short trip. He just decided he would he would be that for them. Unfortunately, though, only a few years after that, 
Walker's mother died in a car crash where she was driving with his youngest brother, Finn, as they call him. And he had, they drove off the edge of a, like a the junction between the road and a bridge and went into the water. And Finn survived, but there was a lot of questions about why then didn't she? You know, if he was able to get out of the car, what was going on? Unfortunately, too, Walker happened to be riding bikes with his friend up, up on the hill above where this sort of risky turn bridge was, and he saw the incident after the fact. So, wow, incredibly traumatizing. Yeah, um, yeah. Walker didn't had a very tough childhood. So now Uncle Will is their sole parental figure. He has this huge library, this big house with lots of nice things. He's a very serious, but a very moral man in a sense. So he's that Southern Stoic who believes in doing what is right because it is right and good. It is your duty, but not necessarily a religious person. I think he was baptized Catholic, but Walker expressed that he had no knowledge of him actually really participating in that throughout his life. Uncle Will had a plan for these boys. Walker was going to be a doctor. And so he sent him off to med school at UNC Chapel Hill. And funny enough, when he moved in with Uncle Will, you might have heard of the author Shelby Foote. He actually lived in the same town that Walker had moved to, and they became best friends and went to UNC together. Um, That's University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. After that, Walker went on to be a doctor at Columbia University. And while he was serving, I believe in his residency there, he contracted tuberculosis from, from a cadaver. This was right before World War II started. So he got placed into a sanatorium in upstate New York and was stuck there, unable to leave, right when the war broke out and his two younger brothers were enlisted to go serve, one in the Pacific and one in Europe. So he missed out on all of this. And I think for him, his brothers expressed that he certainly felt the, the pull of not being able to go along with what, what everyone else is doing, not to be a part of the stories they were making. But while in the sanatorium, though, he started to encounter Catholic works. He met someone who challenged his thinking for the first time about how he saw the world. Because up until this point, Walker believed in, as he phrased it, scientism, which is kind of what Carl Sagan is, which is this pop culture belief that science just is the godsend. It is the answer to everything. Everything can be distilled into scientific terms and eventually we'll figure it all out with science, right? Yeah, that kind of confusing or ambiguous sentence of I believe in science, because I always think like, well, science doesn't ask you to believe in it. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. And so that was him. And, And for a long time, that was satisfying enough. He, he was drawn towards psychology. So he, he was already drawn to sort of a gray area of science. But anyways, this man influenced him to start reading existentialist works. He was starting to read Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard, other Catholic works. In a way, it's kind of like St. Ignatius in that he was bed bound and had to read Catholic books. And that like kind of led to his conversion. But all the while, while he's up there, his uncle Will dies. His brothers are off serving at war. And he's unable to attend any of these things. I think people were able to visit him before they left for the war, but that was about it. And then immediately following leaving the sanatorium, because he happened to be in it at just the right time where a new medicine came out to to heal his tuberculosis. Talk (laughs) about timing. He moved and changed his whole life. He got married immediately with only Shelby Foote in attendance to a woman who was nicknamed Bunt. And they moved to New Orleans where he set out to live a very normal life, intentionally normal. And he would be a writer instead of a doctor. And so he tried his hand at writing and he lived in a suburban town across Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. And so, yeah, that's about it. I will say the last thing is he became well known in the public eye when his first novel to become popular, The Moviegoer, won the National Book Award out of nowhere, again, as an unknown writer. But it won it over J.D. Salinger's Franny and Zooey, which is a very interesting fact that 
Awaka Percy from, you know, not being known at all suddenly is beating out J.D. Salinger at the height of his popularity. So it's impressive. Yeah, we're going to talk about his section on semiotics a bit later, but just to also say that he adopted a child and then had a second child unexpectedly, but she is born deaf. And so he pursues this specialized deaf education, which was not particularly common at the time. And I think that's his sort of window into semiotics. It really reminds me of Roald Dahl and his Mm. looking after his wife and and then also his son, I believe, and developing that valve, which is now used in in all kinds of medical um, (laughs) capacities. And you just think of these writers who are sort of unusual and with these backgrounds that are quite dour and difficult and then becoming these writers, but also having this huge sort of like medical experience and medical investment in their families their children mm-hmm. but yeah it's both incredible to think of that life it's, it sounds unbelievably depressing which is interesting for someone who write, writes about very serious and, and disturbing topics in some ways but also with a, a touch of levity and a touch of humor and lightness as well absolutely it's quite shocking that he goes through all of this life experience and yet comes out the way he does and i think he and his brothers frequently said that their proud one of their proudest accomplishments for all three of them was to die of old age um mm. which is kind of tragic but for them it was hubris right they they sort of conquered that familial trait whatever it was and in their own ways because his brothers are incredibly unlike walker they are really unreligious very american <laughs> um what's odd is that walker's company which he kept from his childhood onwards is really not Catholic. He himself had, was so Catholic and loved the, um, the monastery, which he would go to for mass. He loved the community that he knew there. But he never surrounded himself with just those voices. I don't think he wanted his society to change because he converted. He wanted to still love them and work with them and to draw them towards that truth and meaning if he could. But it does mean that he kept interesting company. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting company. He certainly wrote on interesting topics. So yeah. I think maybe we should delve into some of the, the themes of Lost in the Cosmos. And like you said, the idea that it's a self-help book is very specific to this, I guess, American self-actualization. I know there's a real thing at the moment with people talking about manifesting. Like, <laughs> like, Is that to do with the secret or something? Like if you think about something, it'll appear. So like, you know, self-actualizing, self. Mm-hmm. And, and in a weird way, that the kind of characteristic of modern life being so self-involved and yet at the same time so self-alienated. Yeah. And that really lies at the at the heart of the book. I think maybe, Shane, you want to read out, just to give people like, a, a glimpse into the very start of the book and mm-hmm. also a sense of his tone and a sense of, of the experience of reading this is like, maybe you want to give a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, I'll do that. Just to give you guys a sense of his, his style. So he opens the book after the long titles by saying, imagine that you're reading a book about the cosmos. So you go and buy a telescope and you look out into the sky and you find the brightest spot and you look at it in the, through the telescope and you see that it's red and has a splotch on it. Look in your book, it says that's Jupiter. You, in that moment, have just said to yourself, clearly, that's Jupiter, despite it being such a a cosmological feat of looking through that lens at something millions of miles away. You have no trouble saying that it's Jupiter. You have no, no confusion about it. But he then says, now imagine that you're reading the newspaper. You've come to the astrology column. You may or may not believe in astrology, but to judge from the popularity of it these days, you will probably read your horoscope. According to a recent poll, more Americans set store in astrology than in science or God. You are an Aries. 
You open the newspaper to the astrology column and read an analysis of the Aries personality. It says, among other things, you have the knack of creating an atmosphere of thought and movement, unhampered by petty jealousies, but you have the tendency to scatter your talents to the four winds. Hmm, you say, quite true. I like that. Suddenly you realize, though, that you've made a mistake. You've read the Gemini column. So you go back to the Aries column and it reads, nothing hurts you more than to be unjustly mistreated or suspected, but you have a way about you, a gift for seeing things through despite all obstacles and distractions. You also have a desperate need to be liked. So you have been wounded more often than you will admit. Hmm, you say, quite true. I'm like that. <laughs> and so, yeah, <laughs> for the rest of this book, he will do that himself where he asks these thought experiments you mentioned rachel gives you multiple options and tells you to tick one and he, he's kind of asking why is it that we see ourselves in such different disparate things things that seem contradictory one of the later examples he gives is i think this is an actual experiment where he has people describe others in a few words and then you get your feedback back and you read first the positive feedback <sighs> and then the negative feedback, and you realize, oh, both of these describe me. <laughs> I am both at the same time, like, really selfish and talkative, but also selfless and understanding. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, how can I feel like I am both of those things, you know? Yeah, it's such an interesting thing to explore, because I think he does really get at the fact that the self is so unknowable. And that's what he's kind of getting at by placing it within the cosmos. He kind of points out that we can know so much about things that are millions of light years away and be familiar with them and know facts about them and be confident of them. And at the same time, so completely not know or understand ourselves or have a clear grasp of who we are, or even what we look like. Like he talks about, did you ever catch yourself in the mirror and you just didn't even recognize yourself? Or you're horrified to find out what your side profile looks like that, you or know, you look you at could... a photo. Why do you look for yourself first and see? Secretly... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that sense that you're always looking to find out what you are and you're never actually actually able to pin it down to any one definable thing. Mm -hmm. um, it comes a good bit later in the book in, in the section on semiotics, but he says, semiotically, the self is literally unspeakable to itself. One cannot speak or hear a word which signifies oneself as one can speak or hear a word signifying anything else. Example, Apple, Canada, 7up. The self of the sign user can never be grasped because once the self locates itself as the dead center of the world, there is no signified to which a signifier can be joined to make a sign. So this is, like I said, this very technical section on <laughs> semiotics. But he goes on to say about like how all signifiers apply equally. He says, for me, certain signifiers fit you and not others. For me, all signifiers fit me, one as well as the other. Mm. I am rascal, hero, craven, brave, treacherous, loyal, at once the secret hero and villain of the cosmos. Which I, I think when I think of myself is, is true, though, in that it, from the inside, from your own perspective, you are flexible in so many ways. You can see different elements of yourself. That's why I think many people are frustrated with the question, are you introverted or extroverted? It's because... Oh, I think what they really mean is like overall, which is the more common. But in truth, it depends on the scenario. It's like, I am extroverted with my friends. I'm introverted in a crowded elevator. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. and so in some sense, these questions of like, like you said, putting a, a label on someone, it's really easy if you're walking down the street and you see someone who fits into an archetype of your mind, you've sized that person up in seconds mm -hmm. and you have a sense of who they are, but you can't do that with yourself. 
You can't just take a quick sweeping look. Even though you live with yourself your whole life, as he puts it, you still can't describe yourself. And I think what he does when he's examining this uh, sense of self-alienation and, and this dislocation of, of self and the the struggle that we have to know ourselves is to also place it within the modern age, which offers so little in terms of meaning and in terms of grounding and community. And I think the two are really interlinked. Like I, I know that the quest for the self has always existed within, like he talks about it as being an Edenic thing coming from Eden, but I think it is sort of amplified in this modern age. And so some of the thought experiments that I found kind of the most <laughs> fun and intriguing were at the very start where he talks about the sort of vacuity of the modern age, that everything mm-hmm. is drained of meaning. It's like a it's like a black hole where meaning kind of disappears into it. There's a whole section where he talks about how he was reading an article for interior design about different types of coffee tables. Mm. And every single coffee table is made up of items that are not actually tables and are just being used as a table. So he talks about like a lobster trap or a big spool used for telephone cable set on one end or a cypress stump waxed and highly polished or a cobbler's bench or even a stone slab from an old morgue with the blood runnel used as an ashtray. Um, (laughs) He uses this premise to kind of talk about why do we seek to use things that are not actually tables as tables? And is it because we are trying to get a conversation started or because it's in some way sort of thrifty. But he his last option is because the self of the 20th century is a voracious knot which expands like the feeding vacuole of an amoeba seeking to nourish and inform its own nothingness by ingesting new objects in the world, but like a vacuole only succeeds in emptying them out. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to talk about like what would happen if someone uncovered a sort of Pompeii style a modern house many years in the future and then didn't recognize the things that were tables as tables and ends up using bits of like driftwood to use as a table because they just Mm -hmm. assume there are no tables around or even he talks about why we even use antiques like did people in the past value something because it was an antique or just because it was well made and do we have an ability still to create items that would be considered worthwhile antiques in the future? Like, have we actually lost the ability to meaningfully make tables anymore? Do we just use like yeah. lobster crates? Well, yeah, great question. Imagine imagine like a product from today that in 2070, someone would be repurposing. It's like, everything is like plastic and ugly and not, <laughs> not artisan. And so it's like, you might find some sort of like Seattle hipsters shop with a few worthwhile things, but yeah, there's no there's no sense of like objects being imbued with that anymore, I guess, or less of it. Yeah, there's there's sort of like the telios of table as table. Like what what does it <laughs> what, what does a table achieving its full purpose look like? And then the next section he actually has is on fashion and why we are subjected to it and he says there is no fashion so absurd, so grotesque that it cannot be adopted given two things, the authority of the fashion setter and the vacuity or notness of the consumer. <laughs> But again, he has this really interesting reflection, which goes into what we were saying about self-alienation, which Mm -hmm. is defining yourself through things. And he says, question, what does the sales lady means when she fits a customer with an article of clothing and says, it's you? A, she means the same thing the customer means. It is becoming to me. It looks nice. I don't have a thing to wear. It does something for me. 
B. She means that it, the hat, blouse, hairstyle, dress, actually accentuates your best features, eyes, hair, while minimizing your worst, no neck, etc. C. It will please your husband or lover. D. It will impress other women. E. Most other women are already wearing it and you will look dowdy without it. F. The sales lady means what she says. It really is you. That is, you are not much without it. You perceive yourself as mousy and you are as something, yourself, in fact, your new true self with this item. And as part of that, he has a footnote, which I think is maybe actually the most important thing where he says, what does a woman mean when she says, I don't have a thing to wear, when in fact she has a closet full of clothes? While her statement seems absurd to her husband or a connivance to get more clothes, she is telling the truth. She does not have a thing to wear because all the things hanging in her closet have been emptied out and become invisible. And there is this sense of like the consumerism of modernity, which empties all things out from mm. actually having any kind of meaning. There, there's not a craft. They, they don't come from anywhere. We don't like to think about the sweatshops and the, mm-hmm. uh, the factories that they come from. We just want the finished product, which has no history and no meaning and is dislocated from anything else. And is just a process of consuming more. And I think there is a sort of nihilism to all of that. And I think it really accentuates our inability to find meaning within ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like you've pointed out well, Rachel, that through all these these 20 questions, as he puts it, but there's many thoughts experiments in each question. He's trying to point out things that we've always known or expressed or done that are absurd. And yet we didn't realize they were absurd until he's brought it up. I'll give two more examples and we can also make sure we get to the other sections. But some of these things are like, he says, why is it that every time there's a comedian or a musician on stage, and you guys have probably experienced this, but whenever they say, who all here is from Chicago? <laughs> and like anyone who is will like cheer ravenously. And he's saying like, why is that? Like, why, why are, is that one statement make you behave in a way that you would not behave otherwise? And it, part of it has to do with, like you said, feeling that things have been emptied out. So all that you have left to identify yourself with are these associations. Um, I am a Chicagoan. That is my identity. Not mm-hmm. I am blank because I don't know. I'll say the other really funny and quick thought experiment was, he says, imagine you're in a very normal place, a place that's uh, well known to you and regular. So like in his example, it was getting the, getting the paper while waiting for your commute. Then imagine a news bulletin of tragedy enters your life. How would you respond? And there are four ways to respond, either by saying the news is unrelievedly bad, completely bad, or the news should be bad, but for some reason you take comfort in it, or the news is clearly good, so it's just good news. And then lastly, the news is somewhat good, but you find it depressing. And so an example of somewhat good, but find it depressing is like, what if you heard that your best friend won an award that you were also applying for? Why are Mm. you depressed at their benefit? But anyways, the one that deals with bad news (laughs) it's quite funny the the news bulletin is a ufo has landed in nebraska and vaporized omaha this is news for you do you feel unrelievedly bad for after all there is nothing good about the loss of several hundred thousand people or do you feel putatively bad but secretly not so bad i don't know anyone in omaha and there's something extremely interesting about an authenticated ufo visitation which I had never really credited until now. And for me, I actually felt, not felt this, but I saw this at the beginning of the pandemic. Do you remember that in a way where it was like 
clearly this was bad, chaotic, disruptive news. And yet, even if you were upset and hurt by it and had to change your life, there was something exciting about the change, about the air of this has never happened before. Countries are closing down. People are flying all over. I'm, I'm being told to stay home from work. Who knows how long we'll have to stay home? And I think we've yeah. forgotten this, but early on in the pandemic, there was something exciting about the unknown, you know? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. And I, because I did actually say to someone recently, at least in Ireland, we've had sort of three distinct lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of, the second two sort of blended into each other, but the first <laughs> one was filled with so much, like that sense of people coming together, people making do with like Zoom call quizzes and, you know, making bread and doing up your garden and like this sort of positivism and productivism about like <laughs> relishing this time at home. And by the time we were like, at least in Ireland, we're, we were into about like five months, six months of straight lockdown. <laughs> there was nothing about it that was in any way had that kind of energy to it because it had been so normalized. Like we just, it was business as usual, time to get your deadlines met and time to and not not time to relish in this Mm. it's just time Mm -hmm. to get on with it I think that's a really good point I think it kind of goes on to he talks about the depressed self and this sense of why are people depressed these days and he says are people depressed despite unprecedented opportunities for education vocations self-growth cultural enrichment travel and recreation a because modern life is more difficult complex and stressful than it has ever been b because for men in competition in the marketplace is fiercer than ever c because for women life as a housewife is lonelier than ever what was van- <laughs> what with the vanishing of traditional communities of women around the well sitting on stoops gossiping over back fences D, because for young people, education is more inferior than ever, leaving one unprepared to face the real world. And it goes on and on, but it essentially like has this crux point where it says that because modern life is enough to depress anybody, any person, man, woman or child who is not depressed by the nuclear arms race, by the modern city, by family life in the exurb, suburb, apartment, villa and later retirement home is himself deranged. And <laughs> it, it can be despairing sometimes, right? Like mm-hmm. even before the pandemic, I was telling people that when you dive deep into global news and issues, which is more than anyone else has ever had to deal with, more information than anyone has had to deal mm-hmm. with in the past, it's overwhelming. And to see that modernity, as you've described, for what it is and all of its horrors, despite the scientific progression and the economic, you know, flourishing in some places, there's still just so much that there's to be despairing about. I think that relates to his question on suicide, too. But but yeah, the depressed self is very real yeah and i think i hope people are, are aren't feeling too down about things i, I do think <laughs> no, as, let me as, clarify as, yeah it's not that the the despair is the end he's just saying there is reason to in the sense that the world is challenging it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that that's the last word but he it would be as he said putting your head in the sand to say that there's nothing wrong Absolutely. And I think I just want to give a little like, obviously, this was written in 1983. um, And things have changed since but I think it's so relevant. But then I'll come in with a a slightly more religious perspective. This comes from tablet. It was an article optimistically called everything is broken. Uh, It was by a writer called Alana Newhouse. I would really recommend the article I showed it to quite a few people. I was very moved by it. And again, it is one of those moments where you sort of do reflect on on how crazy (laughs) the modern world is. And I am going to come back to this, but just to remember that this is not a call to despair, but actually to reflect on how much 
you have to work against what's happening and how contrary the Christian message is to what modern life actually sets you up to be. So this writer, Alana, quotes a description of the aesthetics of Silicon Valley, um, which is which was self-given by someone in Silicon Valley and said, it's the realm of coffee shops, bars, startup offices, and co-live slash work spaces that share the same hallmarks everywhere you go, a profusion of symbols of comfort and quality, at least to a certain connoisseurial mindset. Minimalist furniture, craft beer and avocado toast, reclaimed wood, industrial lighting, cortados, fast internet. Homogeneity of these spaces means that traveling between them is frictionless, a value that Silicon Valley prizes and cultural influencers take advantage of. Changing places can be as painless as reloading a website. You might not even realize you're not where you started. And then the writer goes on to say, the machines trained us to accept us, even chase this high. Once we accepted it, we turned from willful individuals into parts of a mass that could move or be moved anywhere. Once people accepted the idea of an app, you could get them to pay for dozens of them, if not more. You could get people to send thousands of dollars to strangers in other countries to stay in homes they'd never seen, in cities they'd never visited. You could train them to order in food, most of their food, even all of their food, from <laughs> restaurants that they'd never been to based on recommendations from people they'd never met. You could get them to understand their social world, not as consisting of people whose families and faces one knew, which is literally the definition of social life for hundreds of thousands of years, but rather as composed of people who belonged in categories. So she really talks about this, this combination of flatness and frictionless as being mm. real hallmarks of not only what modern life is at the moment, but almost what it wants to achieve and why that isn't actually fulfilling or meaningful. And I think to give a, a sort of like a more Christian insight into this, we have Flannery O'Connor saying, at its best, our age is an age of searchers and discoverers. At its worst, an age that has domesticated despair and learned to live with it happily. <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But also that kind of Flannery O'Connor quote where she says, you have to push against the age as hard as it pushes you. Mm -hmm. And T.S. Eliot also says that the universal church seems to me more definitely set against the world than at any time since pagan Rome. I do not mean that our times are particularly corrupt. All times are corrupt. I mean that Christianity, in spite of certain local appearances, is not and cannot be within measurable time official. The world is trying the experiment of attempting to form a civilized but non-Christian mentality. The experiment will fail, but we must be very patient in awaiting its collapse, meanwhile redeeming the time so that the faith may be preserved alive through the dark ages before us to renew and rebuild civilization and save the world from suicide. <laughs> Wow, intense. <laughs> but yeah. very, very true. Like, I, I'll be quick, but if anyone's read the movie goer or, or wants to read the movie goer, Percy talks about this placelessness as well. And it's precisely what you described as that frictionless movement has sucked out the identity, the differentness of every place. In the movie goer, he talks about these movie like characters, Jason Bourne types, even though he, you know, that movie wasn't out when he wrote it, who can just go anywhere and be anybody in any place. And they're completely comfortable in every single city around the world because they already know what they're doing and every city is the same. And like, um, <laughs> it's depressing. Uh, it's depressing. Yeah. It's enticing, I should say. It's enticing, but it's depressing to be lived. And so everyone, I think, would like the idea of thinking that you could be this globally existent person, but you lose a sense of self and a sense of home and a sense of place if everywhere becomes the same. 
No, I, I think that was an incredibly good point to pull out, Rachel. I think my last thing I'll say before we go into section two is that this whole first section for me really just tries to convince you that something is up. A lot of mm-hmm. people would say that we're in the most technologically advanced and wealthiest age is so you know, things are getting better. Eventually, science is just going to fix more and more. Medicines are getting better all the time and we'll be on Mars and like things are on the up and up. And what he's trying to say is that, look at all these things that are weird, that are wrong, that are contradictory, that are strange, that show that we as humans are still incredibly dissatisfied with the lack of sense of what our purpose is and why we're here at all. And then he says, the two accounts now are unsatisfying. The, The straw man Christian side which is just like faith, belief, you're reborn. No, that's not satisfying for anyone. And so, and now he's also said the scientism view is dissatisfying because clearly it's telling us things are only going to get better if we just fulfill all the human needs. You know, humans are just a bundle of needs. And if we can figure them out, we'll fix life. But he's now saying, let me, let me propose to you another way to look at the issue, which is the semiotic theory he provides. So yeah, we hop into that. Yeah, sounds good. So I'll give just a real fast overview because it is dense. But the point he's trying to say is, as far as we know, humans are different for the fact that we do all these weird things other creatures don't. He quotes one person who says, humans are the only being that lies. And so why is it that humans have this capacity? As Dostoevsky put it, it's just actually quite similar. Notes from the underground. He said, humans, the new definition he would give is bipeds that are ungrateful. (laughs) The only beings who are ungrateful. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) There's all these like distinguishing factors, but the other one that he points out is language. Scientists has, have tried furiously, like Carl Sagan, to try and find proof that there's other life out there, other conscious life, whether it's extraterrestrials or, in the case of Earth, people trying to prove that chimpanzees and dolphins and crows can actually think and speak in the same way humans do. And they've been able to show so far that they can do some of those things. Chimpanzees, for example, can learn what a symbol is to the degree that they can do one action with it. In the same way that if you called your dog's name, it would come to you. If you give a chimpanzee tiles, one of which has oranges on it and one of which has sticks on it, you can teach it to put the oranges in one basket and sticks in another. But what you can't do, he's saying, is you can't give it an apple tile it won't know to put it in the, in the fruit basket because it's not fruit to that chimpanzee. It's just a one-to-one cause and effect relation. So he calls this dyadic movement or dyadic symbolism. So, so this is how physics makes sense and how most of science is conducted. It's a sense of cause and effect, one-for-one, mechanistic. This is how it works. And what Walker is saying is if you read up on the literature of semiotics and studies of, of these animals, We've been able to witness this dyadic interaction, just the one for one, I give you this command, you give me this response, sometimes to a complex degree, like like animals being able to memorize hundreds of commands. But there's never been proof that there's an ability to go beyond that, to draw connections where there hasn't been an explicit command reward pathway created. And so this other option, which humans can do, It's what he calls triadic movement or thinking. And so for this, he gives a lot of diagrams. And we can, can, if you want to get through them, you can get into it deeper. But as best as I can summarize it, when we are learning language, and he, again, he's gotten this study from learning through his daughter as she's trying to learn language in the same way that Helen Keller struggled to, to connect symbols with reality and get the meaning that sits between them. It's not just a one for one. It's 
Apple means all apples. What he talks about is you need to have the sense that there is you at one point, the word, and the thing. Those are the three points. Um, and that triadic relationship is the sense that the word and the thing itself are each other and yet are not. They're, they're, they're referencing each other and yet are not. And what he points out is that this situation, this world in which humans suddenly discover or use triadic behavior only makes sense in community because there's no need to speak symbolically unless there's someone to speak to. And so he mentions that Descartes was wrong to assume that any human could exist in isolation. When he tries to do his thought experiment and say, if I strip away everything, what do I know? <laughs> Percy points out, you would know nothing. Like there's no, there's no system of knowing. There's no language. There's no interior thought. There's none of that without this movement from dyadic to triadic, which exists with conveying a thing to somebody else by the means of a symbol, which is the word for it. So I'm, I'm getting a little bit complex. Let me try and draw it back out a bit to say, or actually, no, maybe I'll just invite you, Rachel. Do you want to, I, I have a thought for why this is related to Christian thought, but I'll let you chime in if you have any thoughts on this section. Yeah, I was just thinking, I, I'm totally drawing a blank on the name of the artist and I should know it, but it does remind me a lot of that painting of a pipe that says, that that, that is painted on the bottom. It says, Ceci ne pas un pipe, which is like, <laughs> this is not a pipe. And the idea is, is that it's a painting of a pipe. It's not actually a pipe. And I think what he's really delving into there is our ability to call something a pipe when it's actually a painting mm. and the ability to extrapolate out in that way. And, and, and like you said, talk in ways that the other thing is when they've been building all of this slightly terrifying AI, and <laughs> I think it was maybe to get it to sit on chairs and to try and find a way to program into this thing what was and was not a chair. And I think, again, <laughs> that really goes to his section on, on what is and isn't a table. Like, how do, how can you program into a, a robot to tell it what a chair is? It's actually incredibly difficult and something that they weren't really prepared for how difficult it was going to be. And I, I'm not even sure they've really fully successfully navigated that, which is that as a human, we can look at anything in the world from a rock to um, a bed to an armchair and identify which things can or cannot be used as chairs mm -hmm. um, and which are proper chairs and which are makeshift chairs. And mm -hmm. and um, it occurs so easily, just like that, you know? Yeah. It's so that we simple to us. Yeah, we don't have any problem navigating this question. And I think that's why they took it so for granted when they were trying to program these AI robots to, to identify what was in the landscape around them. They just found out this, this, this problem that is what Percy's getting at is how can you show what words actually apply to so many different things all at once? Mm -hmm. I, yeah, that's absolutely true. I think it's, that's a really great example, by the way. So thank you for bringing that out. But I was just going to say that he takes this theory of why humans are different and how language is a very real, you can point to it, example of why humans are unique and why we are looking for creatures with this ability, whether they are on this earth or outside of this earth. We know that there's importance to that. As he puts it, that, that is what consciousness is. It's the able to know with, concio. And so you have like, you, you're conscious of something. You aren't just conscious as a creature would be like another animal, but you are conscious of it and you're conscious of yourself but with that ability to be conscious of oneself he says lies the snake in the grass and so 
there's a bit of Edenic symbolism there in that he mentions how for those who are first learning language, little kids, people like Helen Keller, who in the stories told about her when she has that breakthrough moment of understanding symbols for the first time, she's just so excited. She's running from thing to thing asking, what is this? What is this? What is this? You're trying to suddenly stuff your mind full of these terms because it, the world is new and magical and you can name everything. In a similar way, we have the story of Adam and Eve, two beings who are out naming things and coming into an understanding of it, ordering the world. It is beautiful and glorious and endless. And yet, what he says, the, the challenge of all that is, is at a certain point, a devaluation occurs by giving something a name. At first, you learn the word sparrow, as he says, and it's, oh, wow, I, there's a name for this thing that I'm seeing. It's sparrow. That's what it is. But then suddenly, after you know it too well, it's just a sparrow. It's another sparrow. The word sparrow has lost some of that magic. And so similarly, when it comes to the end of this naming phase, he, he said it's about like age seven where this comes into play. You start to realize after being so enamored with naming everything else, there's no name for yourself. And you mentioned this earlier, but there's no place in which you can point to something and say, that is me because you're the one pointing. There's no word. There's no anything for it. The reason he names a seven-year-old is because he says, if you just watch children as they grow up, why is it that they aren't self-conscious at a certain age, doing whatever they want with absolute joy, but come a certain age, they're just like suddenly really shy and nervous and care about what they wear. There's a sense of awareness of self that didn't exist before that has caused us now to be dissatisfied and have fallen in some way, you know, from a childhood Edenic state. But what I love so much about this section is that he takes the story of Adam and Eve and realizes that there's a real world parallel to their journey from naming things to then falling into disunion with the world from which they were at one point in, in harmony with. And he shows how this happens as well for all creatures that undergo learning language, meaning children, but like theoretically other beings too. You start with that Edenic joy, but suddenly there's a price to be paid for consciousness, which is consciousness of the self and not knowing your place in your system that you've just created. And so does that and, make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And being ashamed, like he he relates it then to them them covering themselves over. Exactly. In in knowing yourself, you also know yourself to be deficient in some way. Yeah, that that sense of shame as well that they feel noticing that they're naked fits so well into this metaphor as well. And I think it's it's actually interesting within thinking of that, that of God's self-assertion of I am who am mm -hmm. and why that's such a difficult thing for us to translate, like whether in, into English from from the Hebrew, but even just as a, as a concept, I am who am, mm -hmm. that God is the exception to our own inability to point to ourselves and say, who am I? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he is being itself. And so he is able to point to himself and say, I am who am. That's right. That fits into that as well, because that's linguistically challenging too. But mm -hmm. um, I didn't even thought of that. Thank you for that. I think that's what I enjoyed so much is that there are many other theologians who've given accounts for the fall. What it was, was it disobedience? Was it pride as Augustine thought? Because all sins are really just pride. And he's given another account, which fits with a contemporary science that's fascinating and makes sense. Um, and also brings in a need for God because his need for God is, that to cope with this system of seeing, of seeing the world but not knowing where you fit into it, 
there were mythological and religious accounts, but those are unsatisfying. And so the, the, the Christian account is that we are both creatures underneath a creator. And that is the nature of the world. That explains who I am. I am a creature, but broken, but I, I can be made whole. And yet we'll get, this is the next section where you talked about the coping mechanisms of artists and scientists. For those who reject the myth, they reject the religion. They're left with two options, as he puts it. One is imminence, which in his mind is presence to the world. It's, it's kind of similar to a hedonism of sorts or indulgence in that you're conscious of this issue of not knowing who you are and where you fit in. So you just ignore it through experiencing pleasure and the world. And then the other option is transcendence, which is to see the world and to understand it better so that you might rise above it. And there are two ways to understand it better that you've referenced. One is scientific way and the other way is the artistic way, both of them putting words to or explanations to the nature of existence. And, and I think he prefers one over the other, but still doesn't say it's satisfying. Yeah, I think his thing on transcendence and imminence is Again, one of those really interesting sections. I thought it was really interesting. It's not quite within what we're talking about, but just to point it out, I think I shared this quote with you, Shane, and you Mm -hmm. were pretty impressed that there's actually a Pope Francis quote where he uses this term imminence in in this way, where he says (laughs) it's talking about contemporary environmentalism as opposed to sort of Christian stewardship. And the article I got it from says that here is where Pope Francis locates the difference between the Christian life of virtue and contemporary environmentalism. The latter boasts an ethic of sustainability that takes the natural, not the supernatural, as the source of all meaning. And this, he argues, is nothing more than romantic individualism dressed up in ecological garb, locking us into a stifling imminence, which I think it... Yeah, Yeah. the phrase stifling imminence is something straight out of Percy, and I think it's so accurate to the modern day. To speak a little bit on the imminence, he does talk a lot about sexuality and, as I Mm -hmm. said, the degradation of sexuality in the modern world. And again, in some ways, some of it's a little difficult to read just in terms of its graphicness and its, its bluntness in a way. But I think he makes a really good point and one that is, I think, more and more self-evident as time has gone on. We're 30 years on from it. But he says, question, the great problematic, will the ultimate liberation of the erotic from its dialectical relationship with Christianity result in A, the freeing of the erotic spirit so that man and womankind will make love, not war, or B, the trivialization of the erotic by its demotion to yet another technique and need satisfaction of the organism towards the end of that demoniac spirit of the autonomous self disappointed in all other sectors of life and in ordinary intercourse with others is now disappointed even in the erotic its last and best hope and so erupts in violence and that very violence which is commensurate with the orgastic violence in the best of the old erotic age, i.e. war. Wow. Yeah. Like, yeah. Quick, just like, yeah, like you said, content warning for anyone who may not want, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep it as clean as I can, but who may not want to hear this, just, just a fair warning. But yeah, I think that section is fascinating too. We haven't touched on it yet, but throughout this book, he's pointing out why is it that for so many of these progressive thinkers who are trying to make this world into a heaven of sorts and think that they can, why is sex always so central to it? And why is it so strange the way that they go about it? As he points out, o- only humans are those to pervert sex beyond a, a purely biological function. And why, why do we do this? And I think, again, this his background speaks to why this matters to him and why he has authority to talk on it. He's not just 
a Catholic writing at this from an angle where he doesn't understand it. Before he was, he was Catholic and he was living that imminent scientist life. His friends at least have reported that they had this lifestyle before that, before he changed. And so he's seen that world and then he left it behind him when he has this conversion and changes his lifestyle. But my point is, he shows how many want to say, take sex and say, oh, it's merely a biological function. We have all these hangups and cultural issues that are holding us back. But if only we got rid of those, we would probably be much happier. And it's probably the fact that we're feeling so guilty about it that we're unhappy in the first place. But he counters with the argument that, no, the only thing that's making the sex so enticing to these people is because there is a remnant of the Christian past, which is making it feel forbidden for them. In a, in a similar way, it's a strange, but to some like Japanese cultural stereotypes, they play on this a lot, this hyper-sexualized content that at the same time is trying to make people feel bad and dirty and guilty, which only makes it all the better for them. Mm. And so he's challenging this. And then with what you were saying, he asks, if we got rid of Christianity, if we got rid of the guilt, like people asked for, would it still hold its charm? Would it still have that forbidden, dirty, secret power? Or would it just be, as you described, another selfish, self-gratifying, needs-based thing that no longer has any element of sacredness or relation to it? It's merely like walking down the street and picking up a snack. It'd be that easy. Mm. Would that make the world peaceful? Or would, like you said, with this last holdout of excitement and craziness in a world of dissatisfaction, would it then not having that anymore make us just go nuts? And I think him yeah. having seen World War II, which was contained some of the most scientifically and technologically advanced societies of his time, makes him skeptical that the most advanced societies can only do good, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we're going to move to the transcendent now, but uh, he <laughs> talks about the, the artist as the sort of canary in the coal mine in all of this. And I think it's interesting to also look to the popes as the, and the, <laughs> the, ch the church as the canary in the coal mine. I don't yeah, think... Yeah, interesting. I, I, I think so much of what was written about sexuality, while it may have been sort of uh, dismissed at the time, and even now is just sort of prudishness and, and excessive caution, has actually proved to be very prescient. And <laughs> the Humana Vitae has certainly proved that. And also Pope John Paul wrote a lot about pornography. And again, before it was such a prevalent problem as it is now. And he yeah. said, a fundamental message of pornography and violence. He groups the two together, violence and media, mm. uh, tellingly. And he says, uh, a fundamental message of pornography and violence is disdain, the consideration of others as objects rather than as persons. Thus, pornography and violence can eat away at tenderness and compassion and can foster insensitivity and even brutality, mm. which I think even those who are sort of the most strongly positioned forward thinking people in terms of these things can also see the problems that we are having with online consumption and the fact that things like revenge porn as it's called is mm. is now having to be made illegal because it is such an mm. obvious problem i think it's it's really interesting but i think percy does a really good job of pointing out why artists are the canary in the coal mine actually that was a section you wanted to talk about as the alienation of the artist so maybe shane you want to take yeah. it yeah, thanks, Rachel. I really just thought that there was a funny line in this section that sort of squared with my experience in that on the spectrum of societies that are welfare states, some of them have thought about creating a world in which all needs are satisfied. And this is talked about in, funny enough, notes from the underground, again, from Dostoevsky. He, he really 
hate these people who say, oh yeah, humans, if we figure out what they need, we can just give them that and they'll be perfectly fine. But two of the societies that I had noticed growing up was that when I visited Denmark, it felt that way and that there was always an answer. The government had an answer to every single need you could want. It, it wasn't that it was a, a communist society at all. It was just that they had gone out of their way to provide all of the physical needs that people could have and to make them safe and regulated and whatnot, which I think a lot of people still want to do in other countries. And yet there was something really empty about the feel. I'm not trying to, to ostracize any Danish listeners. Please don't feel that way. It's just that the tendency in which is seen in both Denmark and Japan, as, as Percy puts it, to create a perfectly imminent and technological world where all of your physical needs are satisfied is still like unfulfilling. And the last line that Percy says in this section is indeed, as this dreadful century wears on even the most imminent Dane and the most proficient IBM computer engineer is beginning to sense that all is not well, that the self can be as desperately stranded in the transcendence of theory as in the imminence of consumption. Yeah. I think that's so interesting and he talks about artists by necessity being kind of thin-skinned and that that's that's part of it because to be prophetic you kind of have to be sensible to the sort of winds of the time he says that the canary lowered into the mine shaft to test the air has caught a whiff of something lethal mm -hmm. and he compares in this section he actually talks about the difference between einstein and kafka who he says are both sons of middle class middle european families both of whom found life in the ordinary world intolerably dreary einstein escaped the world by science that is by transcending not only the world but the cosmos itself mm -hmm. Kafka escaped his predicament occasionally, not by science, but by art. That is, by seeing and naming what had heretofore been unspeakable, the predicament of the self mm. in the modern world. Mm. And he has a further line that says, exhilaration comes from naming the unnameable and hearing it named. Yeah, again, back to the language, so true. But I think to maybe move on to what might be our last section, which is to just talk about considering it's called Lost in the Cosmos and this sort of scientism and scientific theme that runs through it as, as science not being the answer to everything, which I think is something that needs to be heard again. I think one of the things that he calls out, which I think is, uh, you know, you've already referenced the pandemic. And I think giving instruction during a pandemic is a difficult thing to do. However, we've seen this real call to experts. And I think it's been interesting to see how flawed in some ways that scientific system is because just because you're a virologist doesn't mean you necessarily understand human psychology or just yeah. because you're an immunologist doesn't mean that you understand health systems and how to organize health systems. Mm -hmm. And so this call to authority, I think we've seen how it's kind of fractured because it doesn't have this holistic view. And Percy really saw this coming and in, in a huge way. And he saw it coming in terms of especially to do with trusting doctors to know what to do with ourselves, particularly in terms of our depression. That, and again, uh, he was a doctor who wanted to be a psychologist. So he's not just some internet mom. I'm not trying to be mean, yeah. but like, he's not, you know? <laughs> Abs absolutely. Like he, he does actually know what he's talking about. And he lists it as one of the potential reasons why people are depressed. And he says... With the multiplication of technologies and the ascendance of experts and expertise in all fields, the self has consented to the expropriation of every sector of life right. by its appropriate expert, even the expropriation of its, the self's own life. 
I'm depressed, doctor. What's wrong with me? If you are not an expert in a field, a doctor of depressions, can you refer me to one? <laughs> Thus, the rightful legatee of the greatest fortunes, the cultural heritage of the entire Western world, its art, science, technology, literature, philosophy, religion, becomes a second-class consumer of these wares and as such disenfranchises itself and sits in the ashes like Cinderella, yielding up ownership of its own dwelling to the true princes of the age, the experts. They know about science. They know about medicine. They know about government. They know about my needs. They know about everything in the cosmos, mm. even me. They know why I'm fat, and they know the secrets of my soul, which not even I know. No, that they, 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 that amorphous they, mm -hmm. he points out to so often is just, if you've allotted out every single decision and question in your life to the relevant expert, what's left to you? And that maybe there are some things which can't be allotted out. He, he even mentions that sometimes this trust backfires and that one of the other quotes you've given is that some people are express rage at doctors saying they could cure us if they wanted to, if they took their time and did their research, they could do all these things and no attributing powers to them that they don't have. I think he's right. Like you said, he really called this out early to point out that issue. And it's, and again, it's not to distrust a doctor's or a scientific method. He doesn't mm -hmm. do either of those. It's to be wary of saying that everything can be explained by that. Because not everyone yeah. can. I'm really struck. I don't have the quote here, but I'm struck by its similarity to a line in Chesterton's The <laughs> Democracy of the Dead, where he talks about how that we have to leave the things that are most necessary and important to us to ourselves, such as blowing our own noses and writing our own love letters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love uh, that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that's what's really interesting about Lost in the Cosmos is that it's written by someone who really gets the science and gets what it can tell us and gets it imaginatively and gets it on a practical basis and is not afraid of science or what science can offer us in terms of understanding the world or, like we said, in terms of doctors and medicine and psychology and all of these advancements. It's more that in knowing all of those things, there's still a sense that that is not enough. And he has uh, to read out maybe one last thought experiment is to say, the modern objective consciousness will go to any lengths to prove that it is not unique in the cosmos. Yes. <laughs> and by this very effort establishes its own uniqueness. Name another entity in the cosmos which tries to prove it is not unique. Which of these two propositions is correct? One, as time goes on and our science and technology advance and our knowledge of the cosmos expands, the Judeo-Christian claim becomes ever more preposterous, anachronistic and, not to mince words, simply unbelievable. Two, as time goes on and our science and technology advance and our knowledge of the cosmos expands, the gap between our knowledge of the cosmos and our knowledge of ourselves widens and we become ever more alien to the very cosmos we understand and our predicament ever more extreme. That you sense of us being the only ones to do this and yet we're mm -hmm. so unaware of ourselves doing it. And again, he has, like we said, he has a title. He has a whole section called Why is Carl Sagan so lonely? Um, <laughs> but it's this question of like trying to speak out into the world. And Sagan is lonely because after great expectations, he has not discovered ETIs in the cosmos because chimpanzees don't talk. Dolphins don't talk. Humpback whales sing only to other humpback whales. And he has heard nothing but random noise from the cosmos. And because Vikings 1 and 2 fail to discover evidence of even the most rudimentary organic life in the soil of Mars, Sagan is lonely because 
because once everything in the cosmos, including man, is reduced to the sphere of imminence, matter and interaction, there is no one left to talk to except other transcending intelligences from other worlds. Excellent. Well, one, that's a perfect transition to our last section, but also, you know, Percy's writing about Sagan and with a little bit of affection, but a lot of critique in that, again, he was a huge fan of this style of, of thinking, even though it was simple for a long while. And he gets the fascination with interstellar scientific exploration and, and fiction even. But like you said, it's also a bit preposterous that he's so desperate for something and yet denying what's around him. Like, <laughs> You know, I'll say really quick, a quick, this is a great transition to our next and final section where he gives two stories more or less both around the same theme. The theme is that a ship fueled to the brim and given everything it needs to travel into deep space goes out to try and see if what they believe is a, a planet with extraterrestrial life really is such and to make contact. And he writes it in a way that spoofs on the science fiction novels and that all the science is right. He's made up all these like crazy engines and machines and linguistic methods by which you can communicate with a foreign alien. It's everything from contact and everything from um, Arrival, Arrival. It's, it's all of that combined into this story. But there are two scenarios. One is that you find intelligent life, but it's not what you think. It's not aliens that you need to talk down to and that you've brought them something. This is another conscious being that does not suffer from the self-alienation that humans do. And so we've actually been in our hubris thought that we would find a being to relate to when in fact we found something maybe closer to angels in their in the sense of what their existence is. And so how do how do we respond to that humiliating realization? And the second, and I think the more profound, is we go out into the cosmos and we do not find intelligent life. And this is the one that's based off of a canticle for Leibowitz, but you return and you find the world which is now hundreds and hundreds of years past um, where you left it in an interstellar twist of the spacecraft going so fast that time flies by, you've come back to the world and it's not as you remember it. It's apocalyptic. There's very little hope left and you have a choice. Do you travel to one of Jupiter's moons and create a new human society completely broken off from all of the old anachronistic, dated religious hangups a true perfect society that fulfills human needs and is based on science? Or do you stay in the broken earth? And do you make a life out of it? And you still inherit all the problems and all the troubles of the past, but it's the earth. <laughs> and it's, it's full of realness in a sense. And so he asks you, which one of those do you choose? That last section, in some ways, is maybe... The easiest section to read because it's a lot more narrative, but he does a lot of really interesting things of exploring what we value and what makes a good choice and what would actually result in some meaningful existence. I, I like those sections as well, actually. <laughs> They're cool. But he pits those two worlds against each other, the scientism world and the broken religious humanist world, you know. But. Yeah, absolutely. And so as much as I would love to get into those in more detail, I think we're just going to leave them as a teaser and hope that some people will look to experience it themselves. But yeah, and I think if people have read it or do read it, do let me know. Like I said, I think it's one that's a difficult book. I think it's provocative, I think was the word you used at the start, Shane. And I think that's actually a really good word to use. It is 
thought-provoking and also gut-provoking <laughs> in some ways. So, like, as I said before, enter it at your own risk. <laughs> your own peril. Yeah, I agree. But, but thank you. Thank you for giving it a shot. And yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm sorry it took so long. <laughs> no, no, it's it's fantastic. I think at the very least, talking about it with you has really opened it up to me and hopefully will have opened it up to listeners and, and giving them something to think about. And and ultimately, again, just to, to reiterate that for Percy and for us, that our faith is one of hope. And so um, <laughs> no matter how distressing we see the kind of fall of the, the modern world or even the struggles within ourselves to understand ourselves, that we do have something to point towards and we do have a God to be in communion with and speak mm-hmm. to. And, and, and again, that theme of being able to converse with the creator of everything, I think is really kind of underlying a lot of what he's talking about in terms of semiotics that Mm -hmm. that we can speak because we were spoken into existence so i think there's just one last thing to do which is to ask you what you're enjoying at the moment (laughs) um yeah thanks i will actually reference two of the books that i referenced for this because i just read them one is an actual easy or, or easier but fun and interesting and kind of strange read a canticle for Leibowitz is worth reading it's what the last story is based off of and it's just really, it's really good for, for explicitly Catholic fiction. <laughs> I don't know how to phrase it. But then the other one is Notes from the Underground by Dostoevsky. One of his earlier works, I believe. I'd say that one's more complicated, but you can see so much of what Percy is working with in that book if you're curious, um, particularly the skepticism towards doctors and feeling like you're estranged in the world. Yeah, I'd say those two things. And I'm loving listening to Hippocampus, as always. So. <laughs> Great. Yeah, well, I'm going to say you've taken some highbrow options for me. And normally <laughs> in this section, I do try to keep it fairly like, you know, highbrow, show myself in the best light. Of course, I've been enjoying this great novel. But it was funny. I've been listening to this album and I said it to my brother and we he joked saying, oh, is this going to show up as a thing you're enjoying a Risk Enchantment? Because we we both laughed and we were like, of course, I wouldn't say this. But I've been really enjoying an album. <laughs> I'm going to go for it. What, since I've I've talked about a slightly controversial book, I'm going to put in something <laughs> that maybe will scandalize some This listeners. is the R-rated episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm enjoying an album called Tickets to My Downfall. It's a pop punk album, but by somewhat more noted rapper machine gun kelly (laughs) um and yeah i wasn't necessarily like pop punk and emo music was big when i was a teenager so i was kind of the the target audience i didn't listen to that much of it i listened to a little bit it's not highbrow it's definitely got an explicit content warning although i do think it is interesting to listen to it, it with the lens of saying that this is someone grappling with you know, modernity and using drugs and using imminence and finding that it's not enough. Like that, that is what a lot of music gets written about these days, especially one that has a, a somewhat more um, wrestling thematic idea behind it. But yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's a lot of kind of relatively fun pop punk music. I'm kind of happy to, there's a bit of a pop punk revival at the moment. And I'm kind of happy to see it. Like there was like, it felt like for a couple of years, there wasn't really any bands. And there wasn't a lot of like, it, like everything was this homogenous like we I can tie everything back in but there was like a homogeneity to a lot of music I think for at least for me for the last couple of years so even if it's not what I would call like the best music or or the the most profound album I've ever listened to to me at least it's kind of fun to see subgenres reasserting themselves and having like different pockets of different sounds of music coming out at the moment so Mm -hmm. I've made it sound very profound 
I just like it. Like I said, it's definitely got a lot of swear words in it. Um, maybe not the most uplifting themes, but I, it's it's fun music. So I'm going to say tickets to my downfall by Machine Gun Kelly. And next time, I promise I will have a much more um, yeah. dignified recommendation. Well, for reading this, I think that's okay to say. But yeah, thank you. And I just want to do one quick shout out, if that's okay, to yep. Robin Conroy, just for, for reading this book first when I was trying to get every friend of mine to read it. She she was very sweet and we talked about it for a long time. But yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And we'll have Robin back on again soon. And as always, thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe and send us messages and review us and all of those great things. It would be great to reach a few more people. I hope everyone listening has been enjoying the episodes we've had so far this year. And you can follow us on Instagram, uh, on Risking Enchantment Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter, Seeking Watson. And you can subscribe to our newsletter, which is on my website on rachelsherlock.com. And if you go to forward slash podcast, you'll find the form there. And I'll be coming to you again in another two weeks. Talk to you then. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin McLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Mm-hmm.